0: I'm not at a mind to claim that any type of storytelling genre serves one purpose. However, one can boil things down if. They so desire. For example, for horror, you could say that that is a medium in which we confront and sometimes ridicule the baser fears of our own nature. With that in mind, science fiction is often a vehicle for us to comment on the present day world, sometimes with the veil of plausible deniability. This allows a lot of science fiction products from the distant past to serve as a sort of time capsule for the psyche of the era that produced it, which is true for film in general, but particularly speculative science fiction. Case in point, Forbidden Planet. Uh, Arguably the most ambitious American science fiction film made at that point. Uh, However, it is also very reflective of the values of 1956 when it was made. Uh, For this episode, we're going to be breaking down this film, comparing it to its famous Shakespearean predecessor, and just going into all the various foibles that went into it. My name is Ryan, this is A Real Deep Dive.
1: And I'm Rachel, back once again.
0: Yes, yes, she just had her COVID test back, and she is in the clear, so... Yeah. Yeah, yeah <laughs> here's this episode. and uh, this Be is in the your,
1: same room again.
0: <laughs> yeah, this is your uh, first viewing of Forbidden Planet, right?
1: Yes. Um, the only things that I knew about Forbidden Planet was, A, Leslie Nielsen was in it, and B, it was about The Tempest. And part of my brain, just through pop-cultural osmosis, kept getting it confused with Barbarella.
0: Yeah, if you're thinking of retro sci-fi kitsch, Almost all of the imagery that immediately leaps to mind came from Forbidden Planet and fed into Barbarella and also Star Trek, but we will be talking about that later. I was
1: also going to think of Zardoz, too. You know, uh, Sean Connery his you know, man
0: I have had an eternal debate over whether or not to feature Zardoz on this show.
1: <laughs> Do it! <laughs> that's the only thing I know about, It's that there's some really cringy dialogue, and... You get to see just how hairy Sean Connery
0: really is. It is a lot of perpetual 70's nudity, but that's another episode. Yes,
1: back to Forbidden Planet.
0: right, plot of this film takes place in the 23rd century and focuses on the starship C-57D reaching the distant planet of Altair IV. Its mission is to learn about an expedition sent there 20 years earlier. Dr. Edward Morbius contacts the ship and warns them about the dangers of landing, but Commander John J. Adams ignores him. Adams, alongside Lieutenant Jerry Farman and Doc Ostrow, are met by Robbie the Robot, whom you fell in love with the instant you saw him. Um,
1: yes, I mean, I also, I love robots anyway. You know, I almost always cheer for the robot, and Robbie, he's just this, he looks, like my family's composter, he's large, he's top heavy, he has little dinky arms and round beady legs, and he like clicks and whirls and lights up, and he makes alcohol. He wants people to have a good time. What's not to love about him? And it always made me angry and people were mean to
0: him. He's a little uh, butler guy, just wiggles around whenever he walks. <laughs> Anyways, with this transport, he escorts the Morbius' home. Morbius informs them about how every other member of the expedition had been killed by a planetary force that he describes very vaguely. Their ship, dubbed the Bellerophon, was vaporized as the remaining survivors attempted to escape. Only Morbius, his wife, who died later of natural causes, and daughter Altera were immune to the phantom. Morbius offers to help prepare Adams for his departure, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, leave now, but he, uh, Adams needs further instructions from Earth and has to set up this big rigging in order to do communication over the various light years. Later on, Adams finds Farman attempting to seduce the very naive Alta. She is what the uh, pop culture detective refers to as born sexy yesterday.
1: Yeah, even though she is, like, what, 19, 20 years old, she's still very naive in the ways of men, and of course they meant to make a bunch of, oh, look at you, uh, a whole spaceship full of horny men. Look at you walking around in those skirts. Looks like someone wants to take advantage of you. (laughs) which I was like...
0: (sighs) It is the most 1956 yeah. thing about it.
1: Yeah, that half of the whole crew is just white people. There isn't even a token black guy.
0: 1956. I mean, we will be talking about that later.
1: I mean, even in the 50s, you know, a little something.
0: As Rachel pointed out, Adams chastises Farman for his lechery and taking advantage of the naive Alta, who doesn't understand what kissing is, even though she understands physics very well. However, he focuses the bulk of his ire on Alta for teasing his men with her revealing clothing.
1: (laughs) It's the horrible, like, look at you walking around there trying to get raped. Like, that kind of, like, stupid stuff. Like, I mean, I, I had a good time watching this movie, but this was the part that made my eyes roll into the back of my head.
0: Altera is offended by this accusation and its assertion, but she soon begins wearing more conservative outfits in order to please Adams.
1: I mean, even if he is played by, you know, handsome, young Leslie Nielsen. I mean, Leslie Nielsen, mind you, has always been very handsome, but...
0: I had to point out which one was him. Yeah,
1: I know who it was. I was just like, it's weird seeing him not with white hair or being goofy.
0: I mean, he's very hot, but it's like fifty sitcom dad hot.
1: Yeah, you want him to, you know, put on argyle sweater vest and smoke a pipe and give you advice.
0: And then punish you later.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. All right, all right, okay, we gotta get back up Gotta get back
0: on, on track. All <laughs> right, that evening, an invisible entity sabotages equipment on the ship. Adams and Ostro immediately suspect Morbius and uh, go to Morbius' home to confront him. While waiting for him outside of his house, Adams apologizes to Alto about his behavior. Uh, they then kiss but are interrupted by Altera's tiger. See, uh, she uses a magic whistle to charm the local wildlife. However, the tiger comes out of control, and Adams has to disintegrate it with his ray gun. When Morbius finally appears, they learn that he has spent his time on the planet studying the Krell, an advanced race that vanished from Altair IV for mysterious reasons about two hundred thousand years ago.
1: You mean the whole ex- the longest exposition scene I've ever watched in a movie? He reminded me of like a, of you know Doctor Morbius taking them on like a Disney ride.
0: Yeah, there's even a little monorail, this big long Epcot scene. Amongst the other (laughs) wonders of Krell technology, Morbius shows them a plastic educator, a device that can both measure and augment intelligence. Morbius adds that his first use of the device almost killed him, but it also doubled his cognitive ability. And to demonstrate that the Krell are a very advanced race, this plastic educator was probably intended for their children, like, finger-painting. He compares to the finger-painting in kindergarten.
1: It kind of reminded me of little education pods from, like, Star Trek the, the Vulcans, like, dump their kids in.
0: Morbius then shows Adams a vast Krell underground complex complete with more scientific wonders. Adams states that this discovery should be turned over to Earth, but Morbius believes that human civilization is not yet ready for such technology. Adams has ordered a force field to be erected around the ship in order to prevent further sabotage, but the invisible monster easily breaches the shield and kills Chief Engineer Quinn.
1: Honestly, I like the monster because he's invisible, probably due to budgetary and, you know, the limits of effects in 1956. But he's still really cool and creepy, you know, leave it up to your imagination for the most part.
0: Yeah, you were making comparisons to Predator throughout. Yeah, he was
1: reminding me of the Predator. I was like, in a strange place, there's an invisible monster that hunts people. Yeah, that sounds like the Predator to me.
0: Morbius reiterates that these attacks are the same as the ones that vaporized the Bellerophon uh, 20 years earlier. Uh, Later on, the crew witnesses the creature return. Its outline was revealed in the force field, but the crew's blasters have no effect, and Farman, along with two other crewmen, are killed. Morbius, who is asleep in the Krell lab while this is going on, is startled awake by Altera's scream. She was having a bad dream. The Phantom vanishes the very instant that Morbius wakes up. Dun-dun-dun!
1: Mm, I, I will say, it did go over my head, because I was expecting it to be some some sort of, like, native force on the island, or, or, sorry, I should say indigenous force on the island, because, you know, that's the whole point of Caliban, is that the island really belongs to him, because it belongs to his mom, Sycorax.
0: If you look at the Phantom, it has a goatee.
1: Yeah, I kind of saw that. I thought it looked like the angry gorilla sloth.
0: Adams tries to convince Altera to leave with him. Meanwhile, Ostrell slips away and uses the plastic Educator on himself. He is mortally wounded in the attempt, but manages to tell Adams with his dying breath that the Educator was built to create anything from thought alone. He adds that the Krill forgot about uh, the base subconscious desires of the Id. Given unlimited power from the Educator, These impulses take the form of uh, something such as the Phantom. As he dies, Ostrow speculates that this is what caused the collapse of Krell's civilization. Adams concludes that Morbius' mind created the Phantom plaguing Altair IV, but Morbius refuses to accept this when confronted with it. The Phantom reappears just as Alta informs Morbius that she intends to leave with Adams. Robbie is ordered to stop the Phantom, but recognizing it as an extension of his master's psyche, the robot breaks down. Finally, Thankfully,
1: non-fatally, because I was like, no, not Robbie the Robot.
0: He <laughs> eventually accepts the truth while hunkered down in the Krell bunker. Morbius then confronts the Phantom and is slain in the conflict. As he dies, Morbius instructs Adams to flip a few dials, which winds up being a self-destruct me- mechanism that will destroy the planet.
1: In 24 hours, so it's you know not as dramatic as you know other self-destructs.
0: Yeah, it gives them time to escape, you know, because, you know, his daughter's with them. Mm -hmm. After they escape, both with Alta and Robbie...
1: Yay! I was like, yeah, they brought Robbie with them!
0: (laughs) Adams attempts to comfort Altera by reminding her that a million years from now, the human race will get to the Krell's level of intellect, and her father's tragedy will remind them that we are, after all, not God. The end. Alright, and that is the film.
1: Hey, you you got it down. I mean, honestly, I think because of all the exposition scenes, it felt like it was a lot longer than it actually was.
0: I did tell you that there weren't going to be much in the way of dinosaur fights, but there's going to be a lot of talking. I was
1: hoping dinosaur fights. I even asked if there were dinosaurs in this movie, and I was very disappointed to learn that there were not any dinosaurs.
0: Back in these days, it was enough to be charmed by the gorgeous matte paintings and the weird score.
1: I mean, I like weird scores and matte paintings, but I want a dinosaur fight.
0: Uh, getting to the production, uh, the screenplay of the film was written in 1952 by Irving Block and Alan Adler. Uh, it was titled Fatal Planet at this period. However, Cyril Hume, who has final screenplay credit, rewrote it and changed the title to make the film more marketable.
1: Yeah, if they said Fatal Planet, it kind of would have given away the whole
0: game. The first draft of the screenplay took place on Mercury in the distant future year of
1: 1976. <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah, you know, the original ending had the invisible monster not connected to the mad scientist in any way. It was actually an indigenous creature.
1: I think having it be an indigenous creature would have been kind of cool, you know, because you have really no Caliban or even a reference to Sycorax, you know, parallel in any of the characters.
0: And also, the space captain is able to rescue both the scientist and his daughter. Uh, The film was shot entirely indoors on sound stages. The set dressings were designed by Cedric Gibbons and Arthur uh, Lonergan. And they're gorgeous. This is a very beautiful looking film. Yeah, it
1: really is pretty. I I wanted to live in their cool, like, cave house with a fountain on the inside. You know, have a cool lawn. And once again,
0: your mental image of 1950s retro science fiction is almost entirely drawn from Forbidden Planet. Anything that came afterwards, such as Futurama, that nods in that direction, is going to have some Forbidden Planet in its DNA. Mm -hmm. Roughly three quarters of the starship was constructed at full size and then painted with a cyclorama backdrop. About 7% of the film's budget went into the construction of Robbie alone. (laughs) He cost one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars, which is a cool million in twenty seventeen dollars.
1: Hey, you know what? He's he's a cool looking robot. I like the scene that they have where he just, you know, without even looking, zaps the monkey trying to steal a fruit. There's no reason for that scene other than to be like, ah, look at the robot, look at him go.
0: Robbie is one of the first movie robots who isn't just, like, a bunch of cardboard boxes spray-painted silver.
1: Uh, <laughs> and, and
0: he's possibly the first movie robot to have a distinct personality. I mean,
1: what about the, the Metropolis robot
0: lady? Her personality is slutty and evil. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, being an ugly American again. The first American movie robot to have a distinct personality. Uh,
1: I guess. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, the animated sequences, the laser beams and whatnot, were uh, supervised by Joshua Miedor, who was on loan to MGM by Disney. The id monster, as I said before, has a soul patch, just like Morbius. And Miedor didn't sell animate the id monster. He sketched things out pencil, uh pencil on transparent vellum paper. Uh, then he photographed it in high contrast, reversed the images into a negative, and then tinted all the white bits to red. And it looks super cool. Yeah,
1: he is a really cool monster. I mean, I've always been really fond of, you know, old-timey, you know, movie monsters. I used to watch, you know, old Harryhausen movies with my dad as a kid. And they, oh, those were always really fun, especially, you know, the fighting the skeletons. Isn't that Jason and the Argonauts, or is that a different one?
0: That is Jason and the Argonauts. Hey, okay. Yeah, if you're into old-school DIY handmade special effects, Forbidden Planet has that in aplomb. Moving on to another innovative aspect of the film was its score. This is the first movie with a score performed solely by electronic instruments. It was composed by BB and Louis Barron, who were a married couple. They were the first to record electronic music on electronic tape. For a while, they had a monopoly on tape recording equipment. Okay, pretty yeah. cool. They created the sounds by building circuits based on notes they took from Norbert Wiener's 1948 book, Cybernetics, or Control and Communication in the Animal and the Machine. Basically, they took these circuits and then manipulated them to generate sounds, and then added reverb and tape delay and sometimes speed alteration afterwards in in order to create different syncopations, and then mixed them with up to two uh, separate recordings so they can interact with each other. Uh, Nothing was scripted or notated. The Barons didn't actually consider what they were doing to be music, per se. They saw the noises as actors acting out you know, specific sequences with each other, kind of like how Wagner assigned motifs in his operas, which, once again, sounds very musical. Yeah,
1: I think it, it fits for a science fiction movie. It worked.
0: Yeah, they built a recording studio in Greenwich Village and catered to the local avant-garde scene. Uh, it was possibly the first electronic music studio of any sort. and It was patronized by, among other people, John Cage, who was the first person to call what they were doing music. However, this didn't pay them very well, so they soon approached Hollywood because they needed some money, and Hollywood had begun experimenting with electronic musical devices and their scores. Uh, Bernard Herrmann had used the theremin in The Day the Earth Stood Still, and they thought, oh, we could get in on that. Uh, They did some short films, and then after they had built up something of a reputation, approached MGM asking if there were any science fiction films they could work on. Uh, MGM initially wanted them to do only 20 minutes of sound effects for Forbidden Planet, and have uh, Harry Parch do a more traditional score for the rest of the film. But after listening to what they had, they asked them to do the entire rest of the movie. Uh, <laughs> the The music stunned audiences, particularly the scene where the spaceship lands in Altair 4. It caused everyone to break out into spontaneous applause.
1: Hey, it's pretty cool for something made in the 50s.
0: And it has this analog vibe to it that a uh, digital recording didn't, so it, it feels warm, even though it's very bloop bleep. Yeah. <laughs> and once again, you could argue that it isn't music, but because it's so atonal and it doesn't have any kind of set meter or beat to it, there's no time signatures or what anything it else.
1: Called In the opening credits, it was like electronic tones by <laughs> yeah, the
0: Barons were not in the Musicians' Union, which caused a lot of issues because Hollywood is a union town. So MGM was forced to refer to the soundtrack as electronic tonalities, and a lot of musicians who worked on Hollywood scoring found electronic music to be threatening to what they were doing, which they were entirely right to be suspicious. that ended up replacing a, a lot of what they did. But the Barons never scored another film because of that.
1: Oh, that's
0: too bad. Although they, they, they kept... Producing work, uh, particularly in the artsy fartsy scene, and uh, they continued to collaborate even though they got divorced. Okay, well, Alright, let's talk about the cast of the film. First, Walter Pigeon is Dr. Morbius.
1: <laughs> See, I, I knew who Walter Pigeon was because a kids' show I used to watch had an actual pigeon puppet named Walter, and I didn't get it, but my mom was like, he's this actor. And This was like late 90s, early 2000s.
0: He does have a lot of presence in this film. Like everything else, it's very throwback, old-timey, golden age, Hollywood, old school. But within that particular idiom, I think he shines very well. He
1: makes a convincing mad scientist.
0: Leslie Nielsen uh, is John (laughs) J. Adams.
1: Is this the second Leslie Nielsen movie we've done? We did Airplane. Yes, we did do Airplane.
0: Nielsen is much, much younger than modern people are accustomed to seeing There's him as... He doesn't have white hair. Yeah, he's maybe 27.
1: He is very ageless, though.
0: Yeah, he's almost completely unrecognizable until he has that goofy grin on his face, and then you're like, oh, there he is.
1: Yeah, and is, he says, like, kind of the same voice.
0: <laughs> Especially later on, after he loosens up a bit, and he's yeah. on the planet on the wild, he starts cozying up to Alta. Speaking of which, Anne Francis is Alta. It's
1: just... There to be, you know, you're a pretty lady. She really doesn't have a personality. She's there, so the movie isn't a complete sausage fest.
0: I do think that the bits where she's sexually naive and she wants to explore biology in practice rather than theory are very charmingly performed by her.
1: Yeah, although I think the funniest, well, what we thought was a sex joke is when Robbie the Robot says that he was off giving himself an oil job. (laughs) I mean, it probably wasn't written to be that way, but we were laughing.
0: I do like the bit where Farman keeps kissing her and she's just like, am I supposed to feel something?
1: Yeah, I just feel stimulated. (laughs)
0: I'm not feeling stimulated. Can you do it again?
1: Yeah, I mean, and and mine was the 50s. I wasn't expecting it to get dirty, but I was still like, maybe you should have picked another word.
0: Right, the film got mostly positive reviews. All the contemporary comments I got were being, you know, funny, weird, imaginative, thoughtful. They thought it was visually stunning. They thought gadgets were nifty. It was also very profitable for MGM. It cost about uh, a little under $2 million. It made a profit of about 210000 I don't know what that is in modern dollars, but they were happy with it.
1: Okay, I was like, I, I, I could do the math, but let's, let's not... <laughs>
0: This film has a very long shadow, besides what I already said. For example, the Twilight Zone. Many of the costumes and prop items in this film were reused in Twilight Zone episodes, particularly in To Serve Man. You can see the uh, the, the ship uh, in particular.
1: Okay, well see, what it kept reminding me of was the, the only good hour-long OG Twilight Zone episode on Tuesday We Leave for Home. The ship that arrives on, you know, Captain Benteen's lost colony kind of does look like the ship here. Is it, there a chance that it was the same?
0: A very good chance. Uh, Robbie shows up in a whole bunch of episodes. He is slightly modified each time. Uh, hey, he's the brain center, yeah, the brain center at Whipple's. I uh, that's definitely Robbie at the very end. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Robbie also shows up in The Invisible Boy, a science fiction film that MGM released in 1957. That is the only thing I know about it, that Robbie the Robot is in it. He's square right in the middle of the poster. So,
1: what happened to Robbie the Robot? Is he in some museum somewhere? Was he dismantled?
0: I'm not sure. My assumption is that he's in the Smithsonian somewhere.
1: Maybe, I mean, I've seen, I've been to the movie part of the Smithsonian. I got to see one of the phasers from Star Trek. It does not have a trigger, which I was like, this is surprising, (laughs) but obvious.
0: Speaking of which, Gene Roddenberry cites Forbidden Planet as a core influence on Star Trek, which is very obvious. Mm -hmm. Uh, In a lot of ways, Forbidden Planet often feels like a prototype for a typical Star Trek episode. It
1: really could be if you shortened it down a lot. There's plenty of episodes where, you know, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy and a couple red shirts go down to a planet and meet some hot babe and a scientist guy with a dark secret. And then they have to fight.
0: Yeah, they're a benevolent paramilitary group. They land on a strange world in the spirit of peaceful exploration and then just start punching giant metaphors for human hubris.
1: Yeah, that sounds like a, a TOS episode right there.
0: Yeah, you know, the captain the first officer and the doctor, and, you know, there, there are phasers on it, except they call them, you know, ray guns or blasters. And there's that the whole bit.
1: Phasers, with- Ryan. Phasers
0: there's the part where they put themselves in this stasis, but it looks like they're about to beam down.
1: Yeah, that's what I thought, too. I thought you were talking about Star Trek. They're phasers in Star Trek.
0: Yeah, they're called phasers in Star Trek, but they're they're blasters in Forbidden Planets.
1: Totally different. Yeah, of course. I know, well, it's funny, though, because as we did this episode, like, I've been watching Star Trek The Next Generation in order, and I'm, I'm on the first season, and, like, most of the episodes suck. Or just really cringy, but I'm sticking with it. I, I gotta keep watching. I'm mostly just Captain, you know, I mostly see Captain Picard and Patrick Stewart being as serious as possible, and data are the reasons why <laughs> it's tolerable.
0: Uh, every Trek I've interacted with has told me that Next Gen becomes one of the best series on television on its third season. But the first two seasons are kind of rough.
1: Yeah, there's like. Two actually really good episodes in season one, and then a lot more in season two. But so far, I'm like, wow, no wonder I haven't seen, like, most of these episodes.
0: All right, back <laughs> to Star Trek's ancestor. Yes. Forbidden Planet has an ancestor. And if we're going to do a podcast about Forbidden Planet, we have to talk about The Tempest. Possibly the last play that William Shakespeare wrote, at least the last one he wrote alone. hmm Most people, when they bring up Forbidden Planet, mention that it is a very loose remake of The Tempest, which, emphasis on loose.
1: Yeah, very loose.
0: You can find Tempest there if you're looking for it, but not necessarily.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't have been like, oh yeah, this is The Tempest, if you hadn't told me.
0: For instance, Prospero is the focus on in The Tempest, whereas in Forbidden Planet, it is with the people who land on the mysterious uh, island. Not only that, but Morbius doesn't want the crew to land, whereas with Prospero, that is entirely within his designs, and Morbius has no connection with Adams; There are strangers when they meet, whereas Prospero is very closely tied to the people that he forces to shipwreck on the island. <laughs> yeah. And at the end of it, Morbius does renounce his own hubris and renounces magic. Scare quotes, it's actually science fiction elevated to the point of bullshit fiction where it might as well be magic. Uh, However, Prospero can be redeemed and set free by the audience's applause. Morbius does not get that advantage. Nope.
1: Yeah, Prospero casts his staff into the sea and goes back to civilization.
0: And Morbius just blows up everything with him on it because he's all about the drama. He and doesn't want
1: anyone else to find it.
0: He doesn't think that mankind is fit to have this destructive technology, which we will be talking about in the thematic undercurrents of this film. The next two analogs are pretty obvious. Adams is clearly Ferdinand, whereas Alta is Miranda, uh, up to and including the fact that, you know, she was raised alone knowing no other man besides her father and is a bit sexually naive. The Tempest isn't particularly great on gender roles either.
1: No, not really. I mean, at least there's Ariel who really doesn't have a gender because they, he, she is made of air.
0: Like Robbie. Yeah. Uh, there's a bit of an argument over oh,
1: yeah. who That's Robbie's lovely.
0: analog is supposed to be. Is is he supposed to be Ariel? Is, is he supposed to be Caliban? He's,
1: he's an Ariel for sure.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm leaning towards Ariel with maybe the Ed Monster being Caliban. Yeah. However... Robbie does hook up that cook with that Kentucky bourbon, possibly unwittingly and naive of what the bourbon's purpose is. But he still does, which is very Caliban of him.
1: Yeah, but what's also that scene in the beginning when they ask Robbie if he's a man, and he's just like he doesn't have. He just says he says he doesn't have a gender.
0: Yeah, he's like that question is meaningless to me.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're like non-binary icon Robbie the robot. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, back to like you're trying to gender robots. Like, there's even a couple lines in Star Trek where Dave is like, I am anatomically male. Although he's like, it doesn't mean anything, really. It's too bad they don't explore that because it's like the 80s and the
0: 90s. <laughs> the next one's, you know, stretching it out a bit. Who's far Is it? supposed to be uh, Stefano or Trinculo as uh, Trinculo, the, uh, the the ship cook who wants the bourbon? Uh, uh, who probably, cares?
1: Probably, because isn't he kind of an idiot in the play? Granted, having to write it
0: years. Yeah, I read it recently and in anticipation for this episode is like, there are a lot of stupid drunks that could be the cook, so... Yeah, it's a
1: Shakespeare play. I have to have, you know, the clown and the dick jokes.
0: And when people bring up the Tempest uh, own themes, a lot of people bring it up with uh, Shakespeare's struggles as a writer. You know, a lot of it, it's possibly his last play, and the idea of Prospero renouncing magic at the end might be seen as a metaphor for Shakespeare giving up on writing, which... I don't know. Other people try to say that the Tempest is about colonialism because Prospero lands on this island and just usurps power away from the indigenous natives, which you had already brought up?
1: Yeah, uh, honestly, that's how I've always been, I've always been reading The Tempest, especially you know as a, you know, more socially aware person. I mean, my first exposure to The Tempest is that my sister and I's middle names are both from the play, mine's Miranda, and Lydia's is Ariel. I don't think my parents did it on purpose because my middle name was decided on the ride to the hospital, but... You know, I, I think that you have to talk about the colonialist issues in there. And a lot more modern-day productions of The Tempest will kind of lean into that and make Caliban more sympathetic. Same thing with Sycorax. Like, there is a, um, a sci-fi writer website for Black and Indigenous authors, and it's called Sycorax's Daughters.
0: Yeah, getting back to Forbidden Planet, I don't think that it is overtly trying to be about colonialism. Oh,
1: God, no. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Because we are at the height of the Cold War, at the height of American exceptionalism as a propaganda a- effort.
1: I think we're taking a hard left turn and do it now, for better or for worse.
0: I'm going with worse, but
1: Forbidden Planet (laughs) is
0: definitely about nuclear paranoia because every American science fiction film produced during the 1950s is about nuclear paranoia in some capacity. (laughs) This genre is very conducive towards it because you could pontificate about the evils of the nuclear arms race without being accused of having communist sympathies because you're veiling it behind the plausible deniability of robots and space monsters.
1: Yeah, sort of like how Arthur Miller can be like, It's about Puritans!
0: (laughs) And that comes in really thickly during the lots and lots and lots of exposition where Morbius is talking about how the human race is toying about with destructive forces that can ruin it, and it doesn't understand it, it is not responsible enough to use it properly.
1: Yeah, that sounds like, you know, the Cold War and nuclear powers.
0: It goes into that fear of playing God that, you know, Mary Shelley included in Frankenstein, which is sometimes seen as the beginning of science fiction, although you could see a lot of predecessors before Frankenstein, but... That's the one that kind of set the dominoes going onto modern science fiction. So, Forbidden Planet does have some Frankenstein in its DNA alongside the Tempest. Mm hmm. Uh, yeah. Once again, yeah, science fiction is a medium to speculate, prophesize, and comment on pre- present-day society. Uh, this one does it with a very gentle, watered-down approach to uh, denuclearization, as I mentioned before. And also, this is MGM. They were the biggest movie studio on the face of the planet, and they were dumping a lot of money into this. Granted, not a whole lot, because science fiction films were not considered big audience pictures. This is still the era of the big-budget movie musical, the major dance sequence of of an American in Paris cost exactly the same as the entirety of Forbidden Planet's budget, and that is 15 No minutes.
1: shit! <laughs> I mean, that doesn't surprise me at all. And one thing that I noticed during um, when I watched The Forbidden Planet is that the whole idea of, like, a planet that is full of, of like, really, really advanced technology and it's all underground and there's a guy who keeps it hidden. It's used in a whole bunch of episodes in the sci-fi show Babylon 5, who's a 90s space opera, one of the first attempts at, like, serialized storytelling. Because Babylon 5 is a space station, and it's next to this planet called Epsilon 3. And there's a scene in it where two of the characters walk on this, you know, walkway, and it looks almost shot for shot from what I just saw in Forbidden Planet. It ends up being, like we'll help you, you know, destroy the bad guys who are coming to bother you today. But other than that, leave us alone. The galaxy is not ready for the kind of technology in the planet.
0: I mean, that sounds an awful lot like it was taking a few pages from this. Uh, I haven't, I I don't know anything about Babylon 5. I haven't watched a bit of it, but yeah, you're, you're, you're making a case for it. And I wouldn't, I've read some other things that J. Michael Straczynski was behind and I'm sure he's familiar with Forbidden Planet.
1: Oh yeah, I have no doubt. I mean, he borrows pretty much from everything on Babylon 5. It's a good good thing, it's one of my favorite TV shows.
0: Yeah, despite the fact that this is a science fiction film that is speculating on the future and commenting on the present day, It is still a product of its time, and it has a great deal of 1950s values, and it is a time capsule of America in the 1950s, particularly. This is an advanced, enlightened years ahead of modern civilization. And it's still a boys' club. And it is an all male crew, and it is an all white crew. And we already commented a bit on the little slut shaming sequence
1: that the film.
0: Frames as, yeah, of, of, of course John Adams' is right to chastise this woman for working up all of those other men into a sex-crazed lather. They don't have control over themselves. They're not responsible for what they do to her.
1: Yeah, it's really cringy. I mean, at least in, like, you know, the EC comics, the sci-fi ones, they have that one about the astronaut who visits the planet full of people, like, orange people and blue people who who bicker and are bigoted towards each other the whole time. And the astronaut is like, you guys aren't ready for contact from earth because you, you hate people for an arbitrary reason, such as their skin color. And at the end of the pan of the story, because it's an EC comic story. So there has to be a twist. The astronaut takes off his helmet and he's a black man. And they got in trouble for that too. People got mad.
0: Right. Uh, Throughout your commenting about how this, Looked an awful lot like an EC comic, almost like it was drawn by Al Williamson, who was surprisingly not involved in this film in any capacity.
1: No, no, that's actually very surprising.
0: Well, Williamson did wind up drawing the uh, Star Wars newspaper comic afterwards, so, yeah, he he got involved with a different science fiction uh, icon.
1: It's still pretty good. I mean, if someone told me that you want to work for Star Wars, I would have to think about it for a while.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Star Wars means something else in 2020 than it did in 1978.
1: Maybe I would do it under a pseudonym. Alan E. Smith or something.
0: (laughs) Caucasian white man.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Not me.
0: (laughs) That's the entirety of my notes. Is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap things up?
1: I don't know. Maybe you want to revisit the day the Earth showed still the OG one. Despite my huge crush on Keanu Reeves, I have not subjected myself to the 2008 version.
0: Well, yeah, that's a story for another day.
1: I mean, and, you know, and and I'm a huge robot lover, but Gort is really creepy. And as a child, I had a crush on Klaiteau. He was very handsome.
0: Yeah, I like in the in the original day the earth stood still. It's about nuclear paranoia because, as we discussed before, yeah, and the 2008 ones about climate change because, of course, it is.
1: Well, I mean, as it should be, I think.
0: Right, that is the. I mean, there are a number of uh, swords of Damocles hanging over our heads, nuclear paranoia being one of them. But that's the creepiest one, which is why we lock ourselves in rooms and talk about forbidden planets.
1: Exactly.
0: Okay, and on that note, I think that'll be it for this episode. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time.
1: Bye.